Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Thank you so much for being a part of uh, our programming, listening to it, sharing it with your friends, maybe uh, giving small speeches on street corners about how other people should be listening to it as well. What, you're not doing that? Okay, well, I'm just saying that's that's one possible way that you could, uh, you know, help us get the word out. And, and the best part is we really, truly would appreciate it. So, you know, if you can do it, be a pal. <laughs> Tell somebody about us. We'd love you for it, man. No, really. Love you, dude. All right. We have uh, we talked about a lot of great stuff in the last hour, but I want to uh, I want to shift gears and go on to a couple other different things in in this hour. Last hour we covered things like uh, you know the Trump uh, impeachment inquiry. Going to be something to watch how climate change activists should lose their doomsday predictions if they want to be taken seriously. Uh, What it means to win win life's lottery and be grateful for what you have. And also uh, what it means to speak truth in an age where uh, people are seeking a reason to be offended. Got a couple of other things to talk about here today, too. I'm going to start with the vaping crisis. Since this seems to be making a lot of news headlines, uh, and our perception is, well, if it's being talked about in the news, it must be a problem. But is it really? Max Golker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous article about how the vaping crisis is actually a great opportunity to rethink government bans. And he starts by pointing out, you know, what, what we've been hearing in the news, and that is vaping is making people sick and doctors aren't sure why. A mysterious condition apparently linked to both nicotine and THC-based e-cigarettes has killed seven people and hospitalized several hundred since July. Now, these incidents come amidst controversy over the appeal to minors of flavored nicotine devices like Juul. And he says, since he criticized the FDA's grandstanding on the matter last year, local and state governments have started to take action. San Francisco banned the sale of e-cigarettes this summer uh, before the panic over the unexplained illness erupted. Just this week, New York State enacted a rather incoherent half-measure banning the sale of e-cigarettes with flavors other than tobacco or menthol. And he says, in today's rapid-fire online debates, free market advocates sometimes respond by decrying the public panic and touting the virtues of the product at hand. And he says, to be sure, e-cigarettes give smokers an option healthier than their old habit, while politicians in the media have been quick to stoke the fears of the mystery illness for votes and ratings. By the way, there was an excellent conversation on Larry Reed's program, The Reed Hour, yesterday here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. His guest was Brittany Hunter, and she talked about how this uh, the, the ban on vaping isn't really necessary. In fact, if you want to make it safer for people to vape and and vaping, I think she makes a pretty good case that legitimately people who are trying to stop smoking tobacco products, vaping is a help to them. But if you want to make it safer, she says one of the things that could be done is legalize marijuana, especially since these uh, THC uh, 
what are they called? Cartridges apparently are, are somewhat suspect. And it's, it's believed that uh, those who were selling these, uh, these bootleg THC uh, vaping cartridges apparently had cut the THC in there with some kind of a, a vitamin E acetate or something like that. Anyway, stuff that they really shouldn't have been smoking, but it's been, you know, hurting people. But as this article points out, the important point here isn't about vaping. It's really, it's about the bands themselves. And this is the thing you and I are not supposed to notice. We're not supposed to talk about how bans are costly to enforce. They carry unintended economic consequences. They stifle innovation. They provide powerful incumbent business interests, interests like the tobacco companies, with the means to manipulate government power. And they prevent us from developing more robust and less intrusive methods to improve public health. So let's talk for a moment about the costs of prohibition. Again, this is an article by Max Golker. Golker writes, governments of relatively free countries have a virtually winless record when trying to eradicate things that their citizens want. Prohibition failed. The war on drugs has resulted in a decades-long quagmire. In places where gambling is illegal, guess what? People gamble. So he says we must therefore remember that banning vaping does not mean eliminating it, not even close. And the market for THC-based products is just beginning to emerge from the shadows. And the black market will be happy to pick up the slack for nicotine devices as well. He says enforcement costs taxpayer money and too often the freedom of regular people with no malicious intent. They also shut down entrepreneurs in an innovative new industry. One spokesperson for the industry in New York predicted that every single vape shop in the state, mostly family-owned small businesses, would be shuttered within a month of that ban taking effect. Hey, no price too big to pay for safety, though, right? But the bigger problem is it's killing tomorrow's innovation today. And in this case, Max Golker says, fear of the unknown is what leads to overregulation, or at least that's often what leads to it. But he says such measures are particularly damaging as new technologies evolve in the marketplace. Now, a decade ago, few would have imagined the existence, let alone the popularity of vaping. If allowed to develop products a decade from now will be healthier and higher quality in ways we can't foresee. Such innovation happens when large numbers of entrepreneurs and consumers interact or transact, bargain, experiment, fail, and then ultimately succeed. Arbitrary bans on product attributes such as fruity flavors in the case of vaping block many of the paths that this process of innovation can take. And he also points out how the power of decentralized markets to inform and allocate and innovate and evolve is likely the single greatest contributor to growing prosperity in recent human history. So he says we should approach interventions that interfere with this process, even those that seem small today, with great caution. And then there's the matter of rent-seeking behind the counter. He says, when I first wrote about the vaping controversy last year, I noted that alongside e-cigarettes, the the typical convenience store also sells items like tobacco, alcohol, and junk food. In 2017, the alcohol, food, and beverage, and tobacco industries each spent over $20 million lobbying. 
Now, it's hard to get an exact number for e-cigs, but Juul, said to control a whopping 70% of the industry, spent a much smaller $450,000. Well, based on data from recent years, it's likely that excessive alcohol consumption has killed over 20,000 Americans in the past three months, while smoking killed over 150,000. As far as we know, vaping killed seven people during that period. So he's saying that we must judge government regulations based on outcomes rather than intent. Virtually without fail, regulation allows more powerful interests to gain an advantage over less powerful ones. And this isn't the result of a few bad apples that can be rooted out. It's an inescapable consequence of larger, more established businesses having greater access to officials. Now, all of these problems with government bans don't necessarily mean we as a society should ignore issues of public health. Like so many other issues we face, debates over direct government action preoccupy us and prevent conversations and bottom-up action that's less intrusive and likely more effective in our modern world. People can both receive and convey information with volume and speed unimaginable through most of human history. And when something goes wrong with a product on the market, the assumption that government must be the primary actor would be quaint if it weren't so destructive. So Max Golker wants us to remember deaths and illnesses from vaping in the past few months are tragic and should not be minimized or ignored. But by the numbers, there are multiple public health crises greater by orders of magnitude unfolding behind the counter at any 7-Eleven. What if we let our response to vaping be a laboratory for new ways to think about these types of problems? What if instead of debating government bans, we explored new ways to inform consumers and discipline makers of dangerous products? All too often, alternatives to government bans are difficult to name offhand, not because they don't exist, but because we haven't asked. So he says, maybe this is our opportunity to do better. I have to agree with him here. And I think this is one of the great shortfalls of people who want to ban whatever it is they disagree with. Government only brings force to, into the equation when it's invited to be a part of the solution. You let people work this out on their own, and you know what? We're a pretty smart, innovative bunch of folks. We find solutions that don't require force. Seems to me that would be the better way to go. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. If you are near a phone and inclined to call in, there's your opportunity. You should do it. You really should. Come on, do it. Do it. Do it. There was another article here that uh, that seemed to, to be a nice little slice of life here. Um, I don't know what your feelings are on the self-checkout line. I kind of like it. If I have just a, a handful of items, I kind of prefer the self-checkout line just because it's quick. You know, it's just fast and, you know... Done and done. Now, if I have a cart, a shopping cart full of stuff, yeah, I do like to go to the checkout and 
you know, have a little conversation with the cashier or whatever. That's great. Bruce Yandel has a a piece in the Washington Examiner. Luddites are coming for your self-checkout lane. And he asks the question, what would you think if you pulled into your favorite gas station and learned that just two of the 10 pumps were operating on a self-serve basis? The other eight required buzzing a station employee to come and fill your tank. Or if you stopped at a convenient ATM and learned that the machine operated for just two hours during the normal business day, and at other times, you were invited to step inside a branch and wait for service from a friendly customer service representative. He says you might wonder, why is there a limitation on self-service? And perhaps, who may be gaining from the change? And he says, if you asked yourself that second question, you would be on your way to understanding why the state of Oregon is considering a voter initiative that would limit the number of grocery store self-serve checkout lines to just two per store. Turning from the hypothetical to the real. He says, remember, remember when most U.S. post offices had vending machines in the lobby where you could buy stamps or stamped envelopes and other mailing supplies at any hour of the day or night? That was before 2006. Since then, most of those machines have been eliminated and you will find a pleasant post office employee ready to sell stamps and other postal services during business hours. Now, of course, you can also buy stamps by mail or on the web or at many retail establishments. But still, postal workers largely don't have to compete with machines. Well, ever since Ned Ludd was said to have inspired a movement to destroy textile machines in 19th century English factories that were cutting back on human labor, Luddites or his followers have attempted to protect jobs by limiting the use of labor-saving machines. But now instead of taking up sledgehammers to crush the offending machinery, labor leaders turn to politicians for statutes and regulation. When it's successful, both original and modern Luddites do the same things. They reduce economic growth and call attention to some of the short-term costs of technical progress. So let's get this straight. Although Oregon has long been the butt of jokes for preventing customers from pumping their own gas, the state has backed off of this policy slightly. There are no serious proposals to shut down self-serve pumps in other states, nor are there serious proposals to limit the hours when ATMs can operate. So why then the focus on self-checkout grocery lines? Well, he says it's a one-suit-fits-all solution to a perceived problem. Like many proposals, if you scratch beneath the surface, you'll find that it may be more about eliminating competition than easing the ordeal of change. So this Oregon effort is being justified using several arguments. One says that impersonal do-it-yourself checkout lines limit healthy human contact when buying groceries. Another offer is offered by organized labor leaders who, like the Luddites of old, are just trying to protect jobs. Now here's where it gets more interesting. Having recently passed one of the nation's highest state minimum wage laws... Oregon politicians will have a hard time having it both ways. Higher minimum wages are infamous for destroying low-wage jobs by making it more expensive or downright unprofitable to employ low-wage workers like, for example, grocery checkout personnel. Now come calls to limit the automation that might help keep grocery stores in business in spite of having to pay higher wages. Meanwhile, online sellers with free delivery may see an unexpected uptick in sales. Bruce Yandel says marketing and human creativity 
have a way of jointly bringing forth changes that ease the burden for all of us. That burden of doing business. While at the same time making workers more productive and therefore more valuable. That's why wages tend to rise when the dust settles from technological disruptions. And by the way, that's happened more times than we can count. Makers of paper and envelopes surely and understandably lament the birth of email, but do we regret the technology now? Some such changes are disruptive to the point of backlash. Few people enjoy change, especially when their jobs are at stake. Even so, he says, it's better to allow markets, workers, and employers to figure out the ways to ease the friction of change rather than to let legislative fixes add another element of cost to the problem, which is anti-competitive special interest politics. That's some pretty straight shooting right there. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Thank you. Um, I was the first time I went into Oregon years ago and uh, was a truck driver by trade and pulled up to the pump and realized I had to stand there with my hands in my pockets and let some kid <laughs> that had been properly trained how to fuel my truck. I was blown away by it. Well, at least, then, at least you didn't make the mistake of trying to pump it yourself. I've talked to a number oh, of people who got, got screamed at. Out. Okay, well, then I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I was, uh, the, the fuel price is dropped there in Oregon, but then they come back and they bill you later through your IFTA tax. So most people that drive truck in there are thinking, oh, it's the same price. But no, you'll get hit again. Their, their entire fuel tax is stacked on top of you'll get a bill at the end of the quarter for any additional cost there. And that's, a lot of that is, uh, you know, to help pay for their their roads, of course, but to justify the jobs there. So it's a double-edged sword no matter how you cut it. What was the second tax that you mentioned where, where they'll get it from you anyway? It's uh, it's an IFTA tax. It's a road tax agreement because big trucks can uh, – they can travel. They can fuel where it's cheap and go wherever. So you're billed per mile in the state, okay. and they will keep track of your miles, and they will send you a bill, and you will pay it. Otherwise, you will get a oversized tattoo at their convenience. What a what a great plan! What a great state to stay away from. It is. It is a great state to stay away from. I enjoy it every time I have the chance to stay away from it. I don't blame you. Thanks for your time. Okay, thanks so much for your call. 801-331-8113. You get the gist of this, right? It's not It's not a matter of, well, you know, government's bad. There are some things it's very proper and right for government to be engaged in, like the protection and upholding of your inalienable rights. That's the whole purpose for why government's called into existence in the first place. But this micromanaging stuff, and and by the way, Utah, I know we're feeling kind of smug right now where I live in Utah. Well, at least we're not like Oregon where for years you couldn't even pump your own gas and now they want to limit, you know, the self-checkout things. Yeah, we've got our our own versions of weird um, anti-competition inspired laws. And I wish I could remember, I I, I won't Google this one on the fly, but um, the state of Utah regulates how many days a week auto dealerships are re- allowed to remain open? And if I'm remembering correctly, they, they have to be closed one day out of the week. 
And I don't quite understand. Now, look, I, you know, I've, I've seen this taken to some other absurd extremes in Highland, Utah. Uh, they recently had a, a ban on um, shopping on Sunday. They actually had a city ordinance that said, you know, the businesses have to close if it's Sunday. Now, I happen to believe that Sunday is that's a sacred day. It's not just like any other day, at least for me. So um, I live my Sunday a little bit differently than I live the other days of the week. But I sure don't want government stepping in with its, you know, boots and its force to tell me, well, and if you do try to uh, shop on Sunday or if a store tries to remain open, we're going to have to punish them. Let the market determine that. Let people make their own choices. That's really the better way. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. If you're catching the podcast... I guess it won't be an option then, but uh, I do appreciate you listening. Hit that share button and uh, let your friends know about this as well. All right, I'm going to take my guard down here a little bit. I am, I'm going to be vulnerable for a moment. And I don't like to do this because, you know, on social media, I pretty much have the perfect life. I mean, people look at me and say, man, I wish I could be more like him. Why can't I be like, like Mr. Hyde? That handsome, erudite, brave, charming, magnanimous leader of men who's very prone to exaggeration. <laughs> no, I, but I, I came across an article that struck such a nerve with me because I recognized how much I needed to hear this message. And it's uh, and, and I'll, I'll just tell you straight up. Um, discouragement is not a stranger in, in my life. Uh, it's as as much as I love what I do and the people that I associate with, there are times where I, I don't know another way to put this. I feel my light getting dim. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe not. If, if, if that's something you've never experienced, then my hat is off to you. I think a lot of us have to, to deal with this. And that's what I'm grateful for people who have uh, maybe not all the answers, because I don't think there's one pat answer that will work for every single one of us. We all have different circumstances, different strengths, different weaknesses, different trials, if you will. But the fear and the doubt and the anxiety that inhibit our growth can be a very real thing. And Barry Brownstein, um, what an amazing writer he is. I I like to follow his work on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. actually had a chance to shake his hand and and tell him how much I appreciated his work uh, a few months back when I I ran into him at uh, FeeCon 2019 in Atlanta. Um, Just a a great writer. And he has this this incredible article that I want to share with you about how to overcome the fear, the doubt, and anxiety that inhibit inhibit your growth. And maybe I'm the only one that that really needs this pep talk. But I suspect I'm not alone. And I suspect I'm not the only one who, on occasion, feels that, uh, that, that crushing discouragement and just wonders... Why am I doing this again? What, or why, what is this all really for? Here's how Barry Brown, Brownstein puts it. He says, 
Perhaps you want to be a better coder or a better writer or a better musician. Perhaps you want to start a new business or begin an exercise program. You're full of good intentions, but your efforts seem to sputter out. Well, he says you're not alone. When you work toward a meaningful goal, expect to face a repelling force. Stephen Pressfield calls it resistance. In his journey of becoming a best-selling author, Pressfield came to know well the many faces of resistance. Now, in his book, The War of Art, he explains the aim of resistance is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. And Pressfield warns about this. He also says resistance arises whenever we attempt any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower. Think about that for just a moment. How many times when you've been trying to do the right thing or just trying to do something that you know will make you a better person in some way at the end of the day? You do run into resistance, right? In fact, sometimes it's a really good indicator that, hey, you're on the right path. If there was no resistance, you'd have to wonder, is this really even having any effect? Well, listen to this insight that Pressfield shares. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And he says, between these two stands resistance. Now, Pressfield spells out the mindset of a professional as well as that of an amateur. The amateur is the one who gives in to resistance, places blame for their unmet goals on life circumstances, their upbringing or their partner or lack of one, their busy schedule and on and on. Using external circumstances to rationalize our lack of progress is self-defeating. So here's what Pressfield advises. He says, resistance arises from within. It's self-generated and self-perpetuated. Rationalization is resistance's spin doctor. And this Barry Brownstein asks the question, so uh, did you procrastinate today? Again, you're not alone. Pressfield writes, procrastination is the most common manifestation of resistance because it's the easiest to rationalize. We don't tell ourselves, I'm never going to write my symphony. Instead, we say, I'm going to write my symphony. I'm just going to start tomorrow. And Barry Brownstein says, resistance, Pressfield warns, will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole. Living with our self-deception, we feel like hell. There's a constant low-grade unhappiness and misery. Succumbing to resistance. Most of us have experienced the feelings that Pressfield describes. Tell me this doesn't ring true. Pressfield says, we're bored, we're restless, we can't get no satisfaction. There's guilt, but we can't put our finger on the source. And Barry Brownstein says, if you think your stars have to align to, to beat resistance, you're wrong. What happens after you get a new house and new computer, or I'm sorry, a new desk and computer? What happens after you find a quiet apartment or house, or live with a supportive partner, or find a great job with a supportive boss? Resistance won't retreat merely because you've changed your circumstances. When you're still not ready to do your work, notice how your excuses morph. Now, here's the encouraging part. Barry Brownstein says there's nothing wrong with you. Everyone faces resistance. Fear, self-doubt, and anxiety never fully go away. 
Resistance is always there in full force when we entertain its bad advice. Professionals realize these thoughts will fade away if they turn toward their work. Amateurs resist resistance, which only tightens its grip. Pressfield writes, resistance has no strength of its own. Every ounce of juice it possesses comes from us. We feed it with power by our fear of it. And Pressfield counsels the professional knows that resistance is like a telemarketer. If you so much as say hello, you're finished. So Barry Brownstein says heed his advice. Pressfield wrote the war of art before smartphones were drawing our attention from our work. So if you're constantly checking your phone while you're doing your work, resistance will beat you. I guess he's working on a follow-up essay of how to break your digital addiction. I'm looking forward to that one. So I'm pretty sure I've gotten one myself. And Barry Brownstein says it took him years to learn a simple truth. To beat resistance, show up and keep a regular schedule, whether you feel like it or not. Now, I'm going to give you a quick aside here. A couple of years ago, I uh, took on a, uh, well, a fitness regimen. And I'll tell you, after about nine years of being just as sedentary as I possibly could and eating whatever I wanted until the pain went away, that was a pretty tough undertaking. And the hardest thing to make myself do was to show up at the gym. But I did it. And that always carried the day. As hard as it was to make myself go, once I was there, it was time to get down to business. And I knew it. As Barry Brownstein says, the amateur thinks that their feelings are providing important information. The professional knows they need to think about doing their work, not themselves. Pressfield shares this anecdote. Someone once asked Somerset Maughan if he wrote on a schedule or only when struck by inspiration. He says, I write only when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. And here are the clear signs of an amateur, according to Pressfield. One, he doesn't show up every day. Two, he doesn't show up no matter what. Three, he doesn't stay on the job all day. He is not committed over the long haul, so the stakes for him are illusory and fake. Plus, amateurs cast themselves as victims. Pressfield pointedly observes those playing the victim role seek to achieve gratification not by honest work or a contribution made out of of one's experience or insight or love, but by the manipulation of others through silent and not silent threat. And Pressfield adds, resistance knows that the psychic energy we expend, dredging and redredging the tired, boring injustices of our personal lives, the less juice we have to do our work. Have you had a bad break? Well, get back to work, Pressfield explains. The professional conducts his business in the real world. Adversity, injustice, bad hops and rotten calls, even good breaks and lucky bounces, all comprise the ground over which the campaign must be waged. The field is level. The professional understands only in heaven. Doing your work comes with no guarantees of success. Are you having grandiose fantasies of how the world will receive your work? That's the sign of an amateur mindset. Pressfield says, resistance knows that the amateur composer will never write his symphony because he's overly interested in its success and over-terrified of its failure. The amateur takes it so seriously it paralyzes him. Now, Barry Brownstein says, I write almost every day. If I don't show up seeking to improve my technique, resistance will kick my butt. And he says it'll kick yours, too, if you don't practice. So be a professional. Do your work. And if you're seeking inspiration, follow Pressfield's advice. Begin by mastering technique. Toil beside the front door of technique. Leave room for genius to enter by the back. This is good stuff, right? 
I've got some more just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you um, a commentary from Barry Brownstein, marvelous writer, but boy, is he dialed in on this topic, and that is how to overcome the fear, doubt, and anxiety that inhibit growth. And I don't know what it is. Well, you know what? Actually, as I'm reading his article, I realize I'm seeing I'm seeing some of that professional versus amateur stuff cropping up here, and I I hate to admit how much of that amateur baggage I appear to be carrying with me. Let me just give you a quick, uh, a quick example of what that, that looks like. Um, one of the things he was talking about here was how amateurs give in to resistance. And, and one of the, the quotes that he has here uh, is that uh, resistance knows that the amateur composer will never write his symphony, symphony rather, because he's overly invested in its success and over terrified of its failure. And he takes it so seriously that it paralyzes him. Man, sometimes, sometimes I feel that same sense of why aren't my efforts producing, you know, more fruit? And here's the kicker. I don't even know for sure what the fruit is supposed to look like. I understand in the grand scheme of things, I am not God's gift to truth, (laughs) to commentary, to radio, podcasting or anything else. But I also, at the same time, believe that I'm doing what God created me to do in my own way. It's like I feel a sense of personal mission to do what I do. And I do find a lot of happiness and satisfaction in it. There's no doubt about that. But I recognize very clearly, sometimes I get wrapped around the axle by that resistance. And I find myself wondering, why do we only have this many podcast downloads why do we only have this many advertisers? Why Why this? Why that? So this is, this is a very timely article. Again, if nobody but me gets, gets something out of it, I still think this is time well spent. One bit of advice that uh, Barry Brownstein offers here is practice. If you want to be more of the professional, if you want to be able to overcome the fear, doubt, and anxiety that inhibit your growth, instead of focusing on goals, practice. Thomas Sterner, in his book, The Practicing Mind, Developing Focus and Discipline in Your Life, says everything in life worth achieving requires practice. And by the way, he has a great definition of of what practice is. When we practice something, we're involved in the deliberate repetition of a process with the intention of reaching a specific goal. And he says good practice mechanics require deliberately and intentionally staying in the process of doing something. And being aware of whether or not we are actually accomplishing that. But here's the rub. The only way we can effectively practice is to suspend our attention to our goals. As Thomas Sterner explains, when you focus your mind on where you want to end up, you are never where you are. And you exhaust your energy with unrelated thoughts instead of putting it into what you were doing. That makes sense, right? It kind of reminds me of the, the 
advice given to motorcycle riders and, and, and I guess to drivers too. When something runs out in front of you in the road, if you want to avoid running into it, don't look at it. Look where you want to go. If you stare, you know what you're afraid of hitting? You'll often drive right into it. Now, Barry Brownstein says we torture ourselves by remembering past failures or we remember dreams of future success or we torture ourselves with dreams of future success. But the bottom line is our mind isn't present. So it dilutes our efforts. And that brings us frustration. As Sterner explains, when your mind is only on the finished product, not only do you feel frustrated in every second that you haven't met that goal, but you experience anxiety in every mistake you make while practicing. You view each mistake as a barrier, something delaying you from realizing your goal and experiencing the joy in reaching that, that reaching that goal is going to give you. And to this, Barry Brownstein says to a professional, the process they follow to reach their goal isn't a nuisance. It's a necessity that amateurs overlook. Amateurs are fixated on the goal. Professionals, he says, continue to use the final goal as a rudder to steer their practice session but not as an indicator of how they're doing. And by the way, Sterner also advises us to avoid comparisons. Using the metaphor of a flower's development, Sterner asks the question, at what point in a plant's life, from seed to full bloom, does it reach perfection? He says we can't proceed to, to full bloom and skip the process. Comparing our lives to ideal images will create unhappiness. This is how Sterner puts it. Do you think that a flower seed sits in the ground and says, this is going to take forever. I have to push all this dirt out of my way just to get to the surface and see the sun. Every time it rains or somebody waters me, I'm soaking wet and surrounded by mud. When do I get to bloom? That's when I'll be happy. That's when everybody will be impressed with me. I hope I'm an orchid and not some wildflower nobody notices. Orchids have it all. No, wait, I want to be an oak tree. They're bigger than anybody else in the forest and live longer, too. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says seeking perfection is an amateur's false goal, steering us away from our process. And Sterner writes our impatience to reach some false goal that will not make us uh, to our impatience to reach some false goal that will not make us any happier than we are right now. Costs us when we're absorbed in what we're doing. Impatience fades away. Go pro. Face resistance. Watch your commitment to a process. Pay compound interest. I don't think I've ever heard it put this way, but I really, really like this. And Barry Brownstein wraps it up by saying you should know when you are not in process mode. Your mind is flitting all over the place. Should haves, could haves, would haves come and go. Resisting the process, you're sure, like everyone else in the grip of an amateur mindset, the world is to blame for your lack of focus and progress. He says you won't find more than fleeting happiness by reaching a goal. Instead, go pro. Face resistance. Watch your commitment to a process. Pay compound interest. You'll be, you may be in the valley today, but progress up the side of the mountain occurs one step at a time. I just, I don't have the words to convey how much I needed to hear that message. And if that makes me weak, then so be it. I guess I'm a weakling. 
But this rings so absolutely true. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes page, which will be included with the podcast. I strongly recommend if you have the opportunity, check it out. I think it'll be well worth your time. All right, we are down to just a couple of minutes left. I'm just looking to see if there's anything I haven't covered. Um, let me let me talk a little bit about uh, who I'm going to be visiting with this afternoon. I'm really excited to uh, to interview. I got to pull the guy's name up here. Um, oh, what is his name? Sean Kamek. And he uh, he's written an excellent article about, uh, well, it's actually about a Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, about cancel culture. It's, it's the stand that Yang has taken over the cancel culture. Now, the cancel culture, for those who don't know, that's kind of the uh, that's that that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. The guy, uh, oh, I forget his name, Carson King who's raised a million dollars for this hospital in, in uh, I believe, in Iowa. But now he's in hot water because someone went through and found a bunch of, well, a bunch, a, a couple of insensitive tweets from 10 years ago when he was 16 years old, or eight years ago when he was 16. Well, apparently Andrew Yang uh, really has polarized the far left against him because he's made a very powerful case for why we need to foster a society with more grace. And Sean Kamek will be joining me at 1 o'clock Mountain Time this afternoon as, uh, as I host the uh, Wednesday afternoon edition of Loving Liberty, and we'll have a chance to, uh, to discuss this. I don't think that just here is, boy, if we just look to more politicians like, uh, like Andrew Yang, why they would solve all of our problems. But it is refreshing, isn't it? This is one of the things I, I like about Trump as well, even though he's uh, not necessarily calling for a uh, more graceful culture. His willingness to speak what he sees as the truth in the face of all those people waiting to take offense and, and, and waiting to find some reason to condemn him for whatever he thinks or says. It's very refreshing. In fact, I'm going to go one step further and say one of the reasons that Trump attracts uh, as much uh, vitriol as he does is because courage it's it's courage is contagious so i hope you'll tune in at one o'clock this afternoon immediately after the legal show and remember me stand by we've got beth ann coming up with csc talk radio here on the loving liberty radio network Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.